Hello and welcome to the Uactive Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Uactive's Agri-Food News team. This week, the European Parliament vote on their report on the Farm to Fork strategy, and we speak to an organic farmer about her issues in converting to organic production. This week, there was an, an important uh, vote at the European Parliament in Strasbourg um, on the Farm to Fork strategy. It was actually the uh, report, uh, the own initiative report on the Commission's flagship food policy, which is. Mm. Been- the agri-food part of the European Green Deal, the the main uh, policy of this uh, Commission administration. Own initiative report is one of those jargony things (laughs) that I've had to wrap my head around since I've been in Brussels. The real jargon is INI. INI is the abbreviation. INI, as opposed to an OUTI. Yeah, so sometimes you, you, you have this conversation with people in the particularly in the European Parliament. Uh, by the way, the European Parliament got extremely prepared and good policy assistance on agriculture. Uh, they they work for MEPs, they work in the Secretariat, and uh, it's really good to have, uh, even even when you're trying to get some information and uh, and they try to, to be on a defensive, but still uh, it's really clear that they are super prepared and uh, and actually the future of our They're food in it. good hands yeah, because oh, I mean, they really, it's a big yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes they, they tend to, to use this jargon like, ah, oh, no, it's a nini. nini. So inny, inny yeah. talk to me, what's an inny? <laughs> tell me, tell me about this inny, this mystery inny. I don't know exactly the <laughs> rule of procedure um, which uh, which uh, rule the the INI realm, the INI world. But actually, yeah, the own initiative, uh, it's mostly for those here in the European Parliament, which are some kind or somehow di- uh, linked with a commission strategy. Because we know that uh, um, the uh, main source of uh, laws in uh, the EU are regulation and directive. And um, for regulation and directive, there's uh, the uh, ordinary legislative procedure. So it requires the um, both amendments from the Council, so the Member State and European Parliament. But it's true that when it comes to political declaration or political strategy like the Green Deal or the, um, the Farm to Fork strategy or the pharmaceutical strategy, um, these are basically a document in which the Commission express um, the ambition uh, that they want to fulfill in the next legislative proposal. So they're not really, they're super crucial because in a sense, they basically um, commit the Commission uh, with some kind of uh, targets, requirements. Well, they uh, at least send a, a quite clear signal of, of where they stand on the issue, you know, so like... In, in doing this, they're sending a clear signal of support for the Commission's green ambitions, basically. I mean, even if it's not, you know, legislatively, it doesn't carry any any weight in that respect. Um, they're, they're quite political. Uh, yeah. That's why they're interesting, because, uh, of course, for the farm to fork strategy, they, they, they're going to be like more than 30 uh, directives that need to be revised or uh, approved. Mm. Uh, like the um for instance, the one of the most important one is ones is the soot directive the sustainable use of pesticide uh, which uh, will be probably adopted in uh, may uh, there was the 
uh, in Strasbourg as well, the Commission presented the work program for 2022 and mm-hmm. confirming that uh, the, the, the calendar for the SUD directive, uh, which actually was, uh, we, we, we received a leak in the past weeks and we already, our readers already know. But um, yeah, so again, the, the SUD directive was part of the Farm to Fox strategy. And, uh, and actually, on the, on the revision of the SUD directive, the parliament, both the parliament and the council could actually amend the uh, legislative text proposed by the commission. It's not the same for the strategies like the Farm to Fork. So yeah, that's, that's but, the... But that didn't stop an absolute lobbying <laughs> bonanza. I don't think that's the right word, but I mean, this, 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 this farm to fork vote, the vote on this report, although it doesn't, doesn't carry this weight that we're talking about and it's just kind of a signal, it did just spark this craze of lobbying though, from all sides. I mean, it really was like a kind of a crux of where all the agri-stakeholders came to, to push their message and um, get their point across about their views on the future of the of the farming sector. Um, so there was actually quite a lot of anticipation of this report and there was a lot of buzz about it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, it shows, first of all, and I don't think it's uh, necessarily a good thing, uh, that the current debate on, uh, on the future of the food systems is polarized, at least in two sides, let's say. It's good because in the end, uh, of course, interests are interests, but in the end, we need a common solution. Uh, also, because, I mean, there's an overall interest, <laughs> you know, um, of, of, of ensuring a, a fair transition uh, to sustainable food systems. Uh, but I have to admit, I rarely uh, seen, a, uh, you know, this, the, this level. Ad for this kind of vote, for this mm. um, INI, for this uh, own initiative. Um, yeah, again, it was a bit of a showdown also because, I mean, the Farm to Fork was presented um, during the pandemic in May 2020. And um, yeah, they started, uh, you know, it, it was cri- criticized by both sides, basically, let's say NGOs or environmental organizations and uh, the industry. Uh, but uh, actually, we can say that the, the real showdown between the t- these two sides happened uh, for this vote at the European Parliament. So it was a bit of a postponement of, uh, of a clash. The fact that this um, vote, uh, this um, report has been approved with barely no amendments, uh, was considered uh, as a victory by the Greens and the Green Environmental Organization, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is what it came down to, didn't it? You're talking about this lobbying. It was very much seen, you know, green groups were seen as a, they kind of claimed victory over this report. This was like kind of widely celebrated um, by campaigners as um, as a win, really, for, for their vision of sustainable farming futures. Which is true, actually. It's also true that uh, uh, not a lot of amendments uh, passed at a plenary vote on this kind of uh, uh, report normally, because um, 90% of the work is done at the committee level. 
and uh, there's no a lot of, sp of space uh, in the plenaries for normally of course i mean there are exceptions uh, but I think that this is my my take on this situation. Your hot take. Yeah, the real winner of this vote. Oh, you're about to say something big here. What? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is actually the Commission. Oh, okay. The European Commission, because um, you remember in May 2020 when it was presented this strategy, this farm, the, the farm to fork strategy, uh, the Commission was attacked by both sides. Mm. Um, NGOs were saying. Uh, it's not ambitious. It's not enough ambition. You know, it's it's basically part of uh, of their job to to um, push the commission of presenting more ambitious targets, and at the same time, the industry um, criticized the targets. Mm -hmm. But this, um, you know, this clash between the industry and the green uh, NGOs, so environmental organizations, actually. Um, brought the environmental organization defending the farm to fork as it was presented by the commission. So mm. in a sense, they now they approved or they they like those targets, no? Mm -hmm. So they basically they they, they were um, brought together by this uh, this enemy, let's say. And at the same time the narrative of the industry is Big change is no longer on targets. Now they say, no, we are, of course, it's on targets, but it's more on this impact assessment. So they want to be, uh, they want to farm to fork to be um, assessed holistically. So basically, uh, the whole uh, imp the, the impact of the whole strategy and not of the single measures uh, that are included in the farm to fork. So this week, um, we actually spoke with um, the fairly newly elected um, president of the Young Farmers Association, that's Seja. Um, so we spoke with Diana Lenzi. How was my pronunciation, Gerardo? Quite that good. Terrible? Quite good. Yeah? Yeah? yeah, okay. Hopefully that's all right for you, Diana. Um, so we actually spoke with um, Diana um, ab about her experience in converting her farm to organic. And she has some pretty interesting insights into this. And given the push, the EU's push about organic farming, um, a very, very interesting interview. Let's see what she has to say. So Diana, welcome to the podcast. Perhaps you could kick us off and just give a little bit of a background about um, who you are and your work as an organic farmer. What do you farm and, and where are you? Uh, hi, Natasha. Yes, of course. So uh, my name is Diana Lancy. I am a, a wine grower and viticulturist from Tuscany. Uh, I run since 2008 my family's uh, winery in the hillsides of Siena. It's a we produce Chianti Classico, so very traditional Italian wine. And in 2012, about four years into my management, I decided to actually uh, change the way we, we would farm and convert from conventional farming to organic farming. Um, a big decision um, that actually in the beginning was just about truly farming. Um, we never certified our wine as organic we certified that the wine came from organic grapes. Only last year did we certify our cellar and have actually started producing all the way to the end organic wine. 
Hmm. So tell me, so you say it was um, at first a farming decision. Tell me more about what motivated you um, to to convert to organic. And then maybe we can talk a little bit more about the certification afterwards. So going from uh, conventional farming to organic farming was really an interesting experience. And I spent a lot of time looking at how the, the vines were reacting, how they were adapting. And I just saw them kind of become more self-resilient, uh, more self-resistant, uh, actually. And it was, I always have this, like, vision in my head of, especially in the first years, though, when they were struggling a bit, uh, I felt that I was really, like, asking them to be these kids that, since they were born, had always been uh, given vitamins and supplements, so they were, like, strong and and. But then all of a sudden, I took everything away from them and just gave them a raincoat that would actually melt with rain. And in the first years, they were, it was, it was quite interesting also because the second year, 2014, was one of the rainiest summers uh, here in Tuscany. And I, I remember the struggle there in keeping them healthy and making them actually get to, to harvest in, in a healthy way. So it's, uh, it was a, it was a, a constant adaptation um, process. Every year we were kind of changing a little bit what we were using, when we were using, understanding what was the better timing. Uh, but at this point, really, uh, yeah, almost 10 years down the road, I must say it's, uh, it's incredible to see just the healthiness, general healthiness that we have in the vineyard. And also some of the, the bigger... Um, downfalls which would be productivity have started slightly mellowing out before we used to lose from 30 to 50 percent of our production now i can say maybe we're 20 percent under average yield so it's interesting kind of like that hump when you first initially convert and then you've kind of got to push through it basically is what you're saying i mean do you think there is enough support given to farmers um, that are wanting to convert because getting over that initial challenge um, and that initial um, conversion period must be quite a challenge for farmers. So let's say on the economic side, in a way, yes, because there is a lot of funding being put in to help economically farmers uh, convert to organic farming. What I think is lacking in a way is actually instead that whole knowledge support system that would be useful because you just can't go into this without having a true capacity to recognize a disease, understand how a different methodology of approaching plant disease will have a different effect and how, for example, different ways of, of fertilizing uh, cover crops, how all of, how you need to have a much more kind of holistic and integrated system when you farm organically rather than just kind of have the doctor's recipe uh, that you follow during the year. And so I, I think maybe I would have liked having uh, even support to hire an agronomic specialist that could have helped us in this. Uh, I'm lucky my staff is, is very prepared and very uh, also was really on board of the idea of doing this transition with me. But of course, it, it took for all of us some, some learning and we had to do it all on our own. So that was something I kind of, 
I missed in the transition would have been to have a little bit more of a an integrated knowledge system in place. Uh, a steep learning curve. And I, I know you said that, you know, there was there were a few farmers in your region that were all converting at the same time. So I'm just wondering, did you kind of exchange with them? Was that was that a massive support for you and a help? Um, I, I assume you're kind of all facing similar issues if you're in the same same region. True. And uh, maybe also because of the way I am and how I approach my, my fellow farmers, uh, I tend to ask a lot of questions, seek guidance. That's kind of why I became involved in young farmers organizations. Mm. So I, I, it's, my approach is to be very open and very cooperative. But that is not the typical approach of a farmer, Instead, especially a Tuscan farmer. And they tend to be a little bit more uh, closed in their, their niche and um, I think that that is something that we need to also help kind of uh, surpass as, as mm-hmm. an obstacle, that communication system, the, the loneliness of the farmer. Well, instead, the, if we were to cooperate, to share data, to share information, to share also sometimes technology and systems, the whole territory could benefit from this transition. So. I was very lucky because I am in a territory where I am surrounded by very cooperative uh, farmers. If I think that I am part of an association of producers of Chianti Classico, of Castelnuovo Berardenga, where we, we really try to work together to promote our denomination and our territory together, it's very rare. Mm. But I also see how instead sometimes there's more jealousy towards uh, one's property uh, still Mm -hmm. it's a 50 50 so Mm -hmm. it kind of depends on on your uh, life approach yeah no it sounds I mean it sounds absolutely beautiful where you are I'm jealous sitting here thinking you know hearing about it it sounds beautiful and I just wanted to pick up on something that you said towards the beginning of our chat and you said that initially you weren't certified and then you decided to become certified and I was wondering what why you took the decision initially to not be certified what were the barriers there for you and then why you decided actually to go through the certification process and and how you found that process was it difficult was it challenging you know does that need to be uh streamlined so in the beginning we were just certified for our our field work so our grapes were organic till the moment they basically reached our cellar but we farm everything we do wines from estate grown fruit. The problem was the certification, the bureaucracy behind it, the costs behind it, the, 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 to me, absolutely unrealistic questions that were being asked and, and posed to, to certify us, uh, in terms of, of how we then vinify, um, the type of, of, product or detergent that I use to wash the floors of my cellar has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that my wines can be organic or not. So when I find bureaucracy that is uh, just is like this conglomerate of messiness and rules that don't make sense, I tend to have a, a reaction that is just to push away. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. But I was, at the same time, I was I was producing organic wines by all, all standards, yet when if I were to sell the wine bulk, I couldn't use that type of, 
reasoning, I couldn't just convince people that the wine was organic. They needed a certification that the wine was organic to actually recognize the higher value of organic wines, because there is quite a difference uh, for bulk wine between uh, conventional and organic wines. So in the end, I did have to kind of um, give in and put my registers all in order on every single detergent we use and write out every time we wash our pumps with what. And it's it. we're a small farm. I, I'm in my cellar. It's myself and my agronomist knowledgeist and the quantity of paperwork that we have to go through to first of all, comply to all the rules for Italian wine and then comply to all the rules for organic farming and wine is just massive. There are, there are really not enough hours in the day. And, uh, but because we're small, it's hard to think that you could actually afford someone who could just do the paperwork. And plus this also has a, uh, it has a high cost, both being certified for the farming and being certified in the cellar has a cost that, of course, then takes away part of that famous added value. Mm. And did you ever consider some kind, I mean, because I've posed this question to the commission before, obviously they're looking to triple the amount of land that's going to be farmed organically. Um, and they, they've spoken about kind of options for group certification and how that could maybe try and ease ease the burden. I mean, was that anything that you'd heard of or anything that you considered or, you know, did, do you have any opinions about how that could maybe help ease the burden on farmers? Um, I'm not sure it would actually ease the burden on farmers. Okay. Uh, because That's at the end, they will always come and ask us, the, the final deliverer, what we're doing. And so we will always have to, to fill in that quantity of, mm. of paperwork. One of my major concerns is the fact that basically I hire somebody to certify me for my organic farming which basically means at the same time I am also his boss and I'm a virtuous farmer very virtuous I mean I'm uh, meaning if there's a rule I will follow it to the extent that but I'm not sure that this is a system that actually can enable virtuous farming because in the end, if I'm paying you on an actor base and the more you pay, the more you also have power on this uh, certifying system. So it's, it's a bit tricky uh, in a way. Uh, I think we kind of have to relook at the whole certification process. Also, there has to be a lot more coherence, a lot more... Uh, uniformity throughout Europe. It's it's absurd that I would have to have my products be recertified in Germany if I were to want to sell the wines right. uh, by a, a, a German uh, certifier. We're all part of the same common market, but yet we can't agree that we all use the same rules. It's 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 absurd. This week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euroactive's AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foot, with the technical support of Evi Chiori. This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stitcher and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the latest news from the EU. I'm Natasha Foot. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.